You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. G'day and welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, commercial Starship that is the company Whalen Utani. And I'm Rob Jan, and today is episode number 1239. Our title is Xenomorph Warrior Princess. Our podcast title is Pod Hugger. Yeah, going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the release of Sir Ridley Scott's Alien movie way back in 1979. Flying solo today. Our co-host Megan McHugh is a bit under the weather and will be back with us in due course. Also, a bit of a... A cheery space wave to my partner, Gail Adams, also involved in the production of Zero-G and also under the weather. There's a lot of it going down. I told them, do not go down into the pod chamber. Uh, What can you do? Now, I wanted to mention right up front something I only found out the other day. Uh, Stephen John Thorne. London-born British actor across all of the mediums, um, screen, stage and most extensively radio, has passed away aged 84. He was born in 1935 in London and died on the 26th of May, I believe, but I'm not entirely certain that he might have had cancer. Now, he clocked up over 2,000 broadcasts on the radio across a number of shows on the BBC during his 60-year career. And on genre television, he played three major Doctor Who villains, all from the pre-2000s Doctor Who serials, and in fact, all during the incarnation of the third Doctor, John Pertwee. He was the renegade Time Lord Omega, and also Azal, the last demon, and the male incarnation of the um, last Castrian, Eldrad, <laughs> played many a last alien there. And he was uh, one of the Daleks' minions as well, um, an Ogron. Which one would have that have been in uh, Frontier in Space? I, I also uh, well remember his voice from when he played Treebeard the Ent in the BBC's seminal radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And speaking of the radio, he also played Fred Colin and Death in uh, the Terry Pratchett-derived Guards. Guards. He also made something of a living playing the voice of Aslan from the Narnia series on radio and in uh, animation. He also took over the role of Detective Inspector Lionheart in the audio plays of the 1930s supernatural adventures, adventurers, the Scarifiers. That was after uh, Nicholas Courtney, also of Doctor Who, passed away. He was known for narrating 300-plus audiobooks, including some Doctor Who novelizations and original Whovian audio adventures. He also played the voice of Thor in a 1986 animated movie. Stephen Thorne's other film and television work included The Last of the Summer Wine, 
David Copperfield, Crossroads and Zed Cars. He was married to Barbara Sykes, who survives him, as do their two sons, Simon and Crispian. Stephen Fawn, no longer with us. I always have a, a fellow feeling for people who have worn masks in a genre context, because it ain't easy. I was listening to um, an interview he did about uh, his work on um, the Three Doctors serial, where he played Omega, the renegade Time Lord, and how he couldn't actually see anybody out through the mask properly. And uh, John Pertwee kept moving him out of his... Um, <laughs> camera line because he couldn't be seen until Patrick Troughton intervened and said, John, what are you doing? They all want to look at the monster anyway, not at you. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, now I'm going to play a Jerry Goldsmith track here and um, tell you about it a little bit later, but it, this is all tying into the uh, the alien 40th anniversary in space. No one can hear you scream. Well, that's what they say, but I don't know. I've heard that uh, it also applies to ice cream, (laughs) so I don't know. This is Annie Lee, and I'm Morn Kransky of the Kransky Sisters, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. Lock up your meat safe and beware of the machine with the claw. There you go. Hope you are horripilating out there in the verse as you orbit LV-426, Acheron, planetoid in Alien. And that was Jerry Goldsmith there with a track from Alien. Now, the thing about the soundtrack for Alien, and as I was saying before, it's the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of the film. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, one of the finest genre composers uh, always delivered well I thought on any project that he worked on Um, known for another 1979 score as well, Star Trek the Motion Picture, Uh, again one of the iconic science fiction scores and which had echoes throughout the considerable eternity of the Star Trek franchise especially once they picked up the main title theme and reworked it a little bit for the opening of Star Trek The Next Generation. But the Alien score, now this was a a very avant-garde sort of composition that fit the film quite effectively, but instead of going for the usual sort of uh, leitmotifs that you would often do for these kinds of big, huge blockbuster films, actually not necessarily a massive blockbuster but close enough Uh, the romantic motifs didn't really fit this one there's a few moments where they do that the the cues do sort of trend a bit um, oh how lucky we are to have survived and what a relief (laughs) but the rest of it it's all atmospheric and it's hard to actually disentangle from the sound effects track for Alien as well and that's great that is all to the good that's exactly what they needed for this Ah, 1979. I do actually remember it quite well. The 1970s were a great decade for science fiction movies. Um, Obviously, in 1977, we had Star Wars kicking off this big sort of revival and probably more importantly, cutting loose a lot of funds for different science fiction films. Close Encounters 
encounters of the third kind actually came out in 77, so probably no uh, direct influence there. Uh, 1978, Superman the movie, and in 1979 we had the brood Mad Max stalker. Um, and also the Dead Mountaineers Hotel, if you want to um, get even more Eastern European there. Another um, um, very surreal sort of uh, movie. Um, Meteor, Star Trek, the motion picture, of course, and Aliens, which is a science fiction horror movie. And it's directed by plain old Ridley Scott back then, really sort of gearing up into the start of his uh, movie career, written by Dan O'Bannon, who was more or less kind of uh, fresh from um, that little student film, Dark Star, based on a story by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Chusset, and showing so many influences from other science fiction franchises and movies and literary influences as well. So many books whether or not they get acknowledged or not (laughs) along the way. Now, this film was hugely influential thereafter. So many uh, (laughs) spin-off movies uh, and also imitators, quite often throwing the word alien into their title. Most of them unsuccessful. (laughs) But, you know, that was the way of it. And in some ways, Alien is kind of a B-grade movie plot writ very large indeed into the A for atmospheric and agonising movie that it became. Now, in 1979, I can remember going to the cinema by myself as is pretty much my default setting and it's the same, admittedly, for a lot of other reviewers. Um, And in the cinema in 1979, and I think... Can recall it was a practically empty house, and I remember that it was very cool in the cinema in terms of actual temperature, uh, and that was ideal. It was echoing, and it was creepy. I've got to say, and the Alien franchise. Once you're in the know about it, it's one of those things that you can't actually sit there watching the film hiding behind your hand and your fingers because as soon as you do that, it's like ah, face hugger. So it doesn't work at all. Now, I can remember other things about that particular session that I saw. That was back in the day when the cinema also carried uh, um, a program, a little booklet that um, they'd sell to you for uh, uh, a modest sum, which you could then keep forever, and I did indeed with that one. And some of the uh, the horrific wonders are not actually on display in that program booklet because they didn't want to give anything away to you if you hadn't seen the film or to any other potential customers. But you did get lots of information about the, the actors and the director and so on. Not a lot about them in this case because, well, people in this were, were pretty much, you know, starting out their careers in terms of this kind of very large science fiction movie. Now, they all had done many things before because the cast are pretty much older people. And that was one of the keys to making Alien very identifiable for people. Um, They weren't special. They weren't um, 
uh, you know, young sort of enthusiastic space warriors or soldiers or anything. These just guys were just, uh, and girls were just working grunts. They were space truckers aboard the commercial space freighter, basically a tugboat in space, the Nostromo, named after some elements in uh, Joseph Conrad's works. In fact, if you go through the... Um, the alien universe, most of the ships, as far as I can recall, in the early stages at least, are named after Conrad um, stories or, or elements within those stories, the uh, the Narcissus, the shuttle, um, the Sulaco in the second movie. They're all Conradian in their own way. Now, that's just because really Scott liked Joseph Conrad. <laughs> anyway, um, moving into the movie itself, I re-watched it yesterday just to... Um, to get some sort of uh, a sense for the feeling of it. And I think I, um, I'm not quite sure which anniversary issue it was, probably the 20th one. Um, not much had changed. It wasn't a director's cut or anything, although it did have extra uh, um, deleted footage on the, on the reel that I saw. It hasn't aged all that much, even in the, f- in the 40 years now. Uh, there are some things like um, uh, the, uh, the clunky buttons on the computer consoles, um, <laughs> says he looking over at a computer console that's not all that different uh, but you know what I mean the, um, there, the ho- there are no holographic screens all of the and the many screens in the spaceship itself uh, on the bridge and um, in other locations they're old fashioned CRT computer displays just buried in um, consoles you can see it uh, and a lot of the um, the detailing on the ship also does kind of age it if you uh, look at it in a certain way um, <laughs> I still remember a console that's got um, model kit sprues, you know, the plastic uh, injection moulding um, conduits that, it, that you get with uh, model kits. Some of those just painted and just slapped onto things, all in the, all in the name of giving it added um, sort of reality. Although once you get um, to a too fine a point, it becomes a little bit ridiculous and you're looking at thinking, don't they put covers over anything on this ship? Well... They do in some of the living areas. There's lots of padding, but it's all very worn. <laughs> so, okay, you've got the uh, the Nostromo. It's a, a, a commercial freighter um, towing a, a mineral refinery back to Earth uh, in the far future, a couple of hundred years in the future, and the crew are in hypersleep. They're in suspended animation because it's a long, long flight and the ship doesn't carry enough oxygen or food to keep them all awake. And who wants to actually live for all of that? Probably a better idea to have not not gotten out of bed at all in this particular case as the ship's computer seemingly intercepts a transmission from planetoid LV-426. It's quite far out in the boonies. It's not actually into the inner systems where humanity thrives in this future but uh well you know somebody's got to investigate it in this case it falls to these poor old space truckers as you know and if you haven't seen this movie i do apologize this is a spoiler but it is from 40 40 years ago so you may choose to uh hit your uh, emergency escape pod right now but in the film they discover a hell of a thing down on the surface of l4 LV-426, a crashed alien spacecraft, which we've all become fairly familiar with from the two Ridley Scott prequels, Prometheus and Covenant. 
perhaps way too familiar, <laughs> really. And in this strange biomechanical starship, they find a chamber full of levery eggs, one of which promptly hatches, and the creature contained within hugs the face of one of the hapless explorers from the Nostromo. He's taken back on board the ship. They lift off. The creature falls off, apparently having done nothing. And they all welcome Kane, the crew member, back to the land of the living and prefer, prepare to get into the freezers to go back to Earth during their last supper, literally as well as uh, metaphorically, Cain starts to convulse and a creature erupts from his chest. The alien facehugger has laid a parasite within him, grew to maturity, very similar to the life cycle of certain Earth insects. After that, the creature grows and proceeds to butcher the other members of the crew one by one until only Warrant Officer Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, survives to tell the tale. Now, it's a fairly straightforward story and it owes a lot, culturally speaking, to John Carpenter's uh, The Thing from Another World. Sorry, not John Carpenter, (laughs) back then. Um, John W. Campbell and the Howard Hawks film and also to uh, Forbidden Planets and the 1965 Mario Bravo film Planet of the Vampires and also one called um, It, The Terror from Beyond Space which similarly um, showed a, an alien uh, retrieved from an, another world being brought back to Earth aboard a ship and causing mayhem along the way. There's an A.E. Van Vogt story called The Voyage of the uh, um, Space Beagle uh, and also The Black Destroyer. So there's similar sorts of things in those. I think there was even a, uh, a lawsuit in, uh, engaged over that one which was settled out of court. Uh, anyway, there's um, so many literary references and science fiction tropes involved but all honed to a fine point of perfection in Ridley Scott's Alien movie now let's um, play you a track from the Aliens movie that's the second of the films by James Horner and uh, this is a, a rare occasion where the sequel was just as good if not better certainly more faster paced but that wasn't a problem for Alien it deserved to be a slow measured pace to stir up the requisite horror but in any case the uh, the James Cameron Aliens film is a lot more aggressive and moves along a, a really decent clip and this is some of the James Horner score and I think this is uh, a track called Queen to Bishop quite late in the uh, in the piece where the alien queen that lays the facehugger eggs is facing off against various characters in the alien's human part of the uh, the universe this is peter woodward i play the technomage galen in babylon 5 and crusade and you are listening to zero g who do you serve and who do you trust hmm Terry Pratchett was very undeserved there. Perhaps he got xenomorphed. Aliens, James Horner, the soundtrack from the second in the Alien Aliens franchise. Now, we're talking about the 1979 movie Alien, 
which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. We've talked about the uh, the uh, multiple um, handful of short films that have been released um, on Vimeo, actually, I think I saw them, uh, which are basically uh, fan films um, in tribute to the Aliens franchise and universe. Um, also, uh, when I say franchise, it certainly is. This is another one of those um, billion-dollar creations, eventually, um, that um, has spread out across the years uh, with Aliens in 1986, Jim Cameron, track you heard just then came from that film um the third film alien 3 in 1992 with david fincher at the helm alien resurrection in 97 jean pierre jeanette and then there's those prequels ridley scott's prometheus in 2012 and covenant in uh, 2017 Uh, more to come reportedly In 1989, the Alien universe crashed into exactly the right place with a a dark horse publication house comic book called Alien vs. Predator. A fairly famous juxtaposition now, in its way just as iconic as Godzilla vs. Bambi. But back then, it was such a great concept and Dark Horse went and uh, did so many crossovers with, with that. There would be like um, Aliens versus Predator versus Tarzan at the Earth's core, uh, Aliens versus Predator versus Batman, you know, just so many different iterations of the theme. The very first Alien versus Predator comic turned into a graphic novel later on. Uh, really brilliant stuff and something that deserves to be uh, made fully into a film instead of just the uh, the kind of um, version that was uh, AVP from Paul W.S. Anderson in 2004. Uh, it also informed um, subsequent Predator movies that were standalone ones that had nothing to do with the aliens, really, because they would uh, show alien skull trophies in the Predator's uh, uh, big game cases and stuff. But... That one was the one that kicked it off in 1989. And so we got um, Alien vs. Predator in 2004 and AVP Requiem with the Brothers Strauss at the helm of a not very good adaptation movie. Didn't make a whole lot of sense. And that in itself spun off comic books, games and action figures, as indeed did the main Alien franchise. So much stuff from that. Um, they did a, uh, a live-action theme not a park exactly, but a uh, um, a warehouse uh, live role-playing game type situation in London for a while. Uh, it just went everywhere. And so did the actors and actresses too. Sigourney Weaver playing uh, um, Ellen Louise Ripley in the uh, original film, going on to play the role in four of the other Aliens films as well. Um, she, sorry, three of the others, including the first one, um, she has just gone stratospheric and become possibly the queen of uh, genre roles, really, when you think about it. How many films has she appeared in or just had walk-ins like um, Cabin in the Woods? Sorry, that's a spoiler. Uh, Paul uh, and so on, as well as playing you know, in Ghostbusters and uh, so many things, Avatar, a lot, <laughs> as, being, as well as being the big bad villain in um, 
the uh, Defenders um, aggregate team-up show on Netflix for the uh, Marvel Cinematic Marvel Television universe. Anyway, um, you know, Michael Bean from Terminator, uh, Alien 3, uh, Alien, um, Aliens, and uh, brief appearance in Alien 3, also in The Abyss, you know, fine actor actually, and like to have seen much more of him along the way. Bill Paxton, you know, the, um, the hysterical um, Private Hudson in Aliens, <laughs> gone on to so many things. Uh, I, I could go on with it, it just expands out there forever, but I won't. Instead, I will um, move along and in due course give you another track here, which will be Xenomorph by Hawkwind. Now, there's a a name to conjure with in the science fiction and fantasy genre in regards to music. Now, during that track, I'm going to do a giveaway. And this one's just hot off the presses. And since we're talking about the (laughs) sub-levels of aliens where they get into the basement of the atmospheric processing plant, this is actually going to be staged at the substation at number one Market Street, Newport. But allow me to give you the other facts first. It's um, double pass to the substation to see Losil. And it's on Friday, June the 21st from 7.30pm to 11pm at the substation, number one Market Street, Newport. Doors open at 6.30. And the substation and room 40 are presenting an evening of electronic exploration, a night of fluid oscillations with a renowned cast of international ambient masters, including Losil, plus special guests Raphael Anton Irisari, and Joe Talia, also Echo Ishibashi, and Melbourne-based project Lost Few. Again, Friday, June the 21st from 7.30pm to 11pm at the substation, number one Market Street, Newport. So if you're a Triple R subscriber and you'd like to head along to that, give us a call on 9388-1027. We've got one double-passed giveaway to this event. All right, it's 93881027, and you have to be a uh, paid-up subscriber. And now off we go with the Xenomorph out there with Hawkwind from their Alien 4 album. I played Lindsay in The Human Centipede and the title character in Julia. You're listening to Zero G on 3 R. Yeah, we go with Hawkwind echoing off into the, into the darkness there. One of those ones that just... Kills it at the end. They just that's it. We're done. We're out of here. They're off <laughs> from their uh, Alien Four album, I think. Back in the day, we're talking about the Aliens movies here, uh, the fortieth anniversary. Now, I was thinking about the um, the original uh, movie, and there's a lot of things going for it. I mean, apart from um, Ridley Scott's very assured direction, given um, that he was kind of fresh out of the gate in many respects. But there's other, other things about it um, that are equally important. The score, as we were saying before, by Jerry Goldsmith, which is just as chilling as the sound effects. Actually, the sound effects bear um, 
examination too. There's a lot of really strange moments in it, parts where they they just blast the sound out of existence, the dialogue with um, other things going on, uh, times where things just drop out completely, a lot of recorded on-site kind of stuff through speakers and spacesuit microphones and all sorts of unusual sort of sources that add reality to the piece. The other thing, of course, is the absolutely gobstopping production design. Now, that's actually got quite a few sources uh, from Ron Cobb, the artist, American artist, and also uh, a few other people too. Chris Foss, the famous um, British, well, Greek, British, actually. Who am I thinking about? I'm thinking of Chris Achilleos there. Chris Foss, the uh, British science fiction artist with his massive starships. Some of these, Chris Foss in particular, uh, came with Dan Abanyan in a way because he'd um, been working around them with um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's uh, aborted uh, Dune project that never made it into production. Although, in a way, it's a very famous film that um, never quite got up, but uh, he was one of the artists. Chris Foss was one of the artists who works, worked on that, as indeed was H.R. Giger, the Swiss artist who famously created the alien xenomorph design patched together from uh, some of his other creations. And I think that sort of now familiar biomechanical aesthetic was very important to the alien franchise. It set the, the entire tone for it and contained elements of body horror, as does the actual story. And many other sort of strange, let's be honest, psychosexual imagery that comes out of that film for all sorts of unsettling ways, including the alien's xenomorphsexual weird reproduction cycle that's parts terrifying. You know, actually, there's probably a story out there that uh, could be written from the alien's point of view. They probably think it's all quite normal and tickety-boo to behave the way that they do. <laughs> so, who knows? But in any case, it certainly gets into the psyche of human beings and has stayed there for 40 years, regular intervals resurfacing, partly because it's stuck in our nightmares all this time. It's like it's been kept in hypersleep itself in suspended animation, just cycling through over and over through the pop culture. Now... Other things include the uh, the costumes. Um, you've got John Mollo there being part of the design team and um, Jean-Gerard Mobius working briefly on the film, all of which results in the, those iconic space suits that you saw in Alien. Um, just a, 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 an ability to incorporate disparate elements from a lot of different cultures. Mr Mollo had being an expert in military uniforms and so on. Uh, also worked on Star Wars costumes too. And there's, a, there's an effective feeling to these things so that they look like they could actually be used. They're worn, they're scuffed, they're 
quite complicated. They're intricate in their design, maybe too intricate given how much exposed circuitry and stuff is kicking around in the spaceship. I mean, you'd walk along one of those corridors, you'd snag so many times on all this stuff. Uh, you'd actually just be like waiting there suspended for the alien to come and get you. But <laughs> it's uh, still a kind of um, evocative um, atmosphere there, um, an element of things being used and, and lived in, which extends to the sets too, the alien set for the Nostromo ship, uh, the interiors, all contiguous, which means that you could um, walk from one part to the other without actually breaking out of the character of the spaceship. So the ship itself was a special character too. Um, this is a, a kind of a, a junkyard aesthetic in its decoration that um, was common in Star Wars as well and has extended onwards into the future of science fiction ever since. Uh, of course, it had some antecedents. They'd been cannibalising things for Doctor Who and so on forever and continued to do that afterwards, but, you know, that's where we were. Um, Martin Bauer's uh, model work on the Nostromo, again, a classic realization of that principle of uh, dressing up a obviously relatively small model although not that small in the Nostromo's case I think they actually had to use a forklift um, to counterweight it and to uh, to help move it around um, to give the sense of scale we put a lot of detail into it to make it look bigger than it is it's a Chris Foss technique artistic technique as well and so there's so many things about this film that made it iconic at the time it, it is the ideal science fiction horror movie, a, a, a crossover genre that has since given us so much horrific joy over the years. wasn't the first, but it's certainly one of the most definitive for that genre. And good on Ridley Scott for doing it back in the day. All right, now I want to move on a bit to some of the other Alien franchise. I'm not going to do my favourite film, which is Aliens, and I've talked about that before. Uh, no doubt we'll do again in its anniversary, its next anniversary, whatever that may be, when we get there. Um, oh, yes, uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention which hardly ever gets a mention about Alien, the cinematography by Derek Van Lint, uh, who doesn't have a huge um, CV of films in his background. Um, Dragon Slayer in 1981, um, The Spreading Ground, a little horror movie, uh, and X-Men in 2000. But in the Alien film, he had a very restless sort of camera that wandered around these extensive sets. Why not utilise them perfectly? And, and um, re-watching Alien the other day, I was thinking, this is so, this is so um, powerful, the way he, he pushes that camera around a corner and you're not quite sure what's around that corner, even in stages where the film's relatively benign. Um, before the action starts popping, it's like... What's around that corner? Is there something in that shadowed crevice or in that little nook there? What am I expecting to see here? I'm just feeling a little bit uneasy here. There's a little bit of tension going on all the time in this film. And, of course, then you run into its big set-piece moments. You get the uh, the chestburster creature, all filmed in intimate detail. Um, all, but they also knew when to back off. Um, a lot of the, um, the great moments in Alien are in your imagination. Uh, admittedly, seeing um, the actor Bolaji Badajo in um, the alien costume, they're very careful not to not show it in the full very often or at least very for only quick flashes of moments, which is, again, is a classic technique for horror movies but really brought to a, a sense of perfection in this film. The only thing, actually, I found that it dated a little bit there... Um, 
was the um, the chestburster when it runs across the table after coming out of John John Hurt, poor old Mr Hurt. Um, it looks a little bit too muppety there. Now they'd use um, probably use some kind of CGI or something to make it a bit more fluid. Although I, I can't help think that since um, Jones the cat is in the room, whether or not Jonesy would have just pounced on it immediately. Perhaps unwise move, unless of course Jones was a flurkin, in which case, well, there you go. End of movie, end of franchise very quickly. <laughs> All right, now um, we're going to give you another track here, and we played Zinema uh, from Hawkwind. Um, I thought we might give you. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, I know. He says, pretending to just come up with a song, but he actually hasn't. Here's one he's prepared earlier. And I think we'll have a David Bowie track for today, which is Loving the Alien. And this is um, a 1999 remastered version. And it is from um, a bigger album, of course, a uh, bigger collection. But um, I've got this one off the best of ba- David Bowie from... 1980 and uh, there's a couple of things about this song that are important it's not actually about space aliens um, it's about mr bowie's uh, disillusionment with organized religion but it's still kind of cool in its context for this i suppose i could have played something from the man who fell to earth but i decided to play this one because it's been a while since i spun this particular disc wow Hey, space buddies, I'm Danny John Jules. I play the cat on Red Dwarf, and I gotta tell you that listening to Zero G is fashionable as wearing knee-length socks with thongs. Zero G, industrial strength sci-fi pum-pum on three triple R. Thank you for loving the alien there with Mr. Bowie, and thank you to Phil Gillot for ringing up and... Walking off with the double pass to the low sill at the substation. Now, that's about it for the show for today. We're going to drop ship out of here with our final track from Aliens. And this is uh, actually called uh, Combat Drop. And it's from the deluxe edition album Aliens score James Horner at the helm. So we'll go out with that just to wake you up for Xenomorph Num Num Time. Lunchtime here at Triple R. Rob Jan. Next week, I think we are going to have some uh, Daikaiju fun with Godzilla, King of Monsters. Looking forward to that one. Actually, want to go and see it at the IMAX because the last couple of um, Kaiju movies I saw were there and they really rocked and I just want that that whole effect you know we want that event going on all right that's it for zero g Joe Brunetic coming up next with astral glamour until next week what's alien ya if Jones had been a flurkin bye bye xenomorph this has been a podcast from three triple r one oh two point seven fm in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rr.org.au.